This week on Living the Call, Deacon Charlie sits down with pro-life author and speaker Brett Atterbury. After a powerful midlife conversion to Christ that led him to seek healing for his role in the abortion of his own child, Brett left his career and devoted himself entirely to saving lives from abortion. Brett has an academic and professional background in economics and consumer product marketing. In this episode, Deacon talks with Brett about his cutting-edge approach to ending abortion, specifically by incorporating powerful business and marketing strategies into his work. He discusses the importance of investing heavily into healthcare efforts that will make abortion irrelevant to thriving, empowered, supported women. From a marketing perspective, it seems to me that the core argument of the pro-life movement has been about the moral issue of abortion. It's wrong to kill a preborn human being. And I'm starting to think, yes, that's true, objectively true. But if it doesn't work from a marketing perspective in terms of persuading people, is there a different way to get to that same conclusion, but that you might need to market it differently? This is Living the Call. This is so, a cool setup, man. I thanks. Love yeah. Got the I little, put it together. Uh, what are these called? I forgot the sound. The, the little soundproof system. Yeah. 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 Well, the, you, you notice the shape too. Cruciform. Ah. See, that's my little, it's everywhere. The faith is everywhere. <laughs> and especially given the people who are. I, Very clever. I, I do another show too, which is a secular show with my business partner. Um, and uh, so I have a lot of people in the studio and it's like, I, you know, I try to get little things to, to kind of get them in, you know, get them involved in the spirit of things. Well, I like that you uh, use the studio for multiple purposes. Yeah, there you go. There you go. That's true. That's kind of the story of my life lately anyway. <laughs> but um, yeah, any any questions? No. And we'll go as wherever the spirit leads us. So yeah, and as and, long and as we need to. I noticed in your um, mm-hmm. in your document that you were like, you know, you're pretty much saying whatever I'm comfortable with sharing. Anything you want. And so I, I don't have uh, anything to hide. You Great. Know, um, have abortion my background, divorced a year ago. Um, Sorry to hear that. Thank you. Um, you know, we, I don't know if that would be a rabbit trail or not. Um, I would say as I write in the epilogue of that book, uh, it's not, it's not the main reason, but certainly one of the reasons that certainly affected my marriage mm. was that when I had this decision that I was going to go all in on this pro-life thing, I, I, I just wasn't, uh, at that time I was, I was definitely, uh, you know, come out of the high tech industry. I was, mm. you know, big risk taker and just kind of left everything behind all in and wasn't really thinking about my family that mm. much and, uh, you know, paid for that. So I'd say here I am, you know, on the, on the other side of that. And, and also now in, in our team at Heroic Media, we do a lot of uh, training with the Authentic Leadership Foundation. So we'd study things like what are the virtues what is a prudent, prudent decision. Yeah. And so when I look back at that, I was like, I could have, you know, now I think about it in retrospect, I could have done all those things that I did, but still been more prudent about it. Well, how did you view prudence prior? Probably I didn't really view Mm. it. I I just, I, I probably knew what it was, but if you said define it specifically, I probably couldn't. And then Based on that, if you said, well, how would you run a major decision in your life through the lens of prudence? I wouldn't have known what to do. Mm. Now I do. Uh, so that's why I can kind of go back in that time and say, oh, could I have achieved the same thing, been more prudent about it, specifically around, you know, keeping an income stream, for example, yeah. in my professional life going while 
on the side pursuing this pro-life thing, I think I could have done that. So, but is that in keeping with your temperament, the sort of all in <laughs> yeah. kind of yeah, dynamic? Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a strong choleric temperament. Mm. Um, and that's when I look back at that, the actions that I took at that time were highly choleric in terms of that, in terms of also what I would say, like a choleric, one of the weaknesses of the choleric temperament is to instrumentalize things and people mm. in order to get done what you want to get done. Mm. And so someone who's strongly choleric like I am has to keep that in mind. And obviously that's not a good thing, especially, especially using people yeah. to get things done. And so I have to always be very aware of that in my work. The idea that people, relationships, things can be means to ends. Absolutely. Essentially. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it's, I mean, with your background though, and we have some similarities in our backgrounds, I think that that, um, it, you know, the opportunities to fall into that are everywhere. Yeah. You know, um, my background, uh, also kind of marketing, but very much in the business development side of things. So mm -hmm. relationships were, you know, positioned as means to ends very specifically for financial purposes. I mean, especially in a secular setting, it's like, and it's weird because at some point in my, um, and by the way, we're, we can just go. So if yeah. you're, if you're comfortable sure. with it. So, <clears throat> but in one, in, in one part of my uh, professional setting, uh, I started training other salespeople. And one of the things that I, that I remember now looking back feels like a Holy Spirit moment was this idea of, of sort of trying to distinguish between business relationships and friendships and trying to understand the differences and, mm -hmm. you know, explaining to people that it shouldn't be about a transaction, that it should really be about a relationship. And you kind of even can attach a material end to that saying, hey, I'm not going to sell you one thing. I'm going to send you five things over 10 years, right? But it's still about selling. But this notion started to creep in that we really shouldn't look at other people as sort of means to ends. And it was not something that I was conscious of from a spiritual dimension, mm -hmm. but it was just, it started to creep into my work as I started to raise up other salespeople. And of course the Holy Spirit used that, like he uses everything, you know, to kind of help develop a further relationship with me. There's a podcast, what is that called? These, these two, they're fairly young, at least they're young to me. I think they're in their forties, but the, it's called the minimalist, I think. I don't okay. know if you've ever heard of that. No. And, um, they kind of have, they have a lot of slogans, but one of them is use things, love people, or maybe it's love people, use things. I don't mm -hmm. remember. But to me, it's a, it's a very short kind of catchy way to remember that, especially if you have that strong choleric temperament, that, um, people are not a means to an end. And that ultimately, especially we as Catholics, it's like, you always have to be, even when they, when people are part of your team and you're on mission to achieve something, mm -hmm. their dignity has to be increased as a result of them being on team with you in the process of going there. Amen. Right. And yeah. if you don't, if you forget that, uh, problems can happen. And so because it's my temperament, I have to be very intentional mm. about that. I have to step back and make sure I don't get so caught up in that, you know, just driving like tunnel vision to achieve yeah. the goal. Yeah. That um, I have to make sure that no, these are these are people, these are God's children, Amen. Who's brought them into this, and 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 especially if I'm leading a project or a company, I have to be very aware about how is their dignity as people, how are the, how are my team members' dignity as people increasing um, with their involvement in this process. Do you think the instrumentality kind of thinking and that sort of you know people as a means to an end is particularly pronounced for men? 
a good question. I I certainly think in temperaments, I was trying to remember what the breakdown of temperaments are. And is there is there something based on uh, female and male? And I just don't remember. But there was certainly, even on our team, we have, um, I was thinking, we have a small team, but I was thinking one person is choleric, mm-hmm. uh, but not strongly so. She's a choleric sanguine. Most people are a blend of some. Yeah. I just did this recently, too. There was a, a, a retreat that we did in Phoenix, and the facilitator walked us through it again. Mm-hmm. I'd done it before, but mm-hmm. in, in to be honest, sitting here, I actually forget where I where I map, but my guess is somewhere near where you are as well, because mm-hmm. I've had those same kind of struggles. But I just wonder what the, you know, how, how being male sort of impacts on this, because it seems to me that the idea of being very sort of driven, yeah. goal-oriented, I got to go out and you know, whatever it is, even prehistorically, right? Hunt the thing, yeah. kill it, bring it back. Cause if not, we don't eat. There's like a little bit more of that, I think, to the, to the male makeup or psyche. I would think so. But then I was kind of wondering, is that as we've seen in our culture in the United States uh, over time here, let's just say the last century where women have really begun to take on uh, more stronger leadership yeah. roles in community and businesses and things like that. I certainly see and have certainly worked with women who I would say are strongly choleric and, and had the same challenges that I have, you know, yeah. in terms of the instrumentality of people. So that's very interesting to wonder how much of it is just nature and how much of it uh, is basically our societal structure that basically, that teaches people to be like that. Yeah. My friend, question. my friend, Samantha Kelly, who was on the show recently, she's the CEO of uh, fierce athlete, which is a, mm. um, it, sounds it, cool. It's super <laughs> cool. And she's super cool too. She's mm. like this, uh, you know, former division, you know, one collegiate athlete, soccer player, hockey player. Like, you know, she, she weightlifts. She's just really interesting, but she's also, she now runs this apostolate called fierce Catholic to sort of introduce the idea of true femininity, sort of a Catholic understanding of femininity into the athletic world because her contention is similar to yours that over the last whatever period of time that um, a lot of things, including athletics, have been framed in this way that like you must be this way, right? And so a lot of women are in a way of performing their athletic duties in a way that is is kind of unnatural and doesn't make use of their feminine genius in the way that it should. And it was super interesting the way that she broke it down, you know, the, the, the natural sort of sense of competitiveness and all of those things. And what she found in her experience is that in a lot of cases, the athletes, and even including herself, were not really living the fullness of their athletic potential because they were trying to do it in a way that was not natural to their feminine experience. And so there definitely is a reason or there's a, there's a difference rather and I think a lot of those differences were in a culture right now, and especially here in Los Angeles, where a lot of those things are not um, celebrated perhaps as they should be. There's like this weird thing where at the same time we're trying to, um, you know, drive this sense of there's there's sort of sameness and every, everybody can do everything and whatever. And at the same time, we're kind of like, you know, we, we have a culture that tries to balkanize and separate everyone based on mm. a variety of different things. So it's this weird kind of uh, schizophrenic approach to things. But returning to the essence of, you know, male and female have these complementarity, mm. you know, principles and we view the world and reality in a different way, but it's for a beautiful reason is kind of what her work really made me think about. Mm. Yeah, that's, I'd love to see. So I was also an athlete in college, mm-hmm. division one runner. Nice. 
And so long distance or short sprint, uh, middle distance and long distance. So you know, on track, it would be mostly a 1500 meters, occasionally a 5k when I was crazy enough to do that oh, wow. later in my career. Didn't like that too much, too many times around the track and then cross country as oh, well. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. So I'd love to see, um, how she views that. I'd, I'd like to read, mm-hmm. read more. It's called fierce Catholic or fierce, fierce athlete? athlete, fierce, fierce athlete. athlete. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a really cool you know, cool thing. Athletics, I think, is 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 really beautiful and a, mm-hmm. and a wonderful expression of the integration of you know mind, body, and soul. If if it's done appropriately, I think there's a lot that athletics can teach us. I, I was I'm not a runner. I was you know running for me was always punishment. You know because I played football and stuff. So when we were running, it was because you did something wrong. You know you dropped a pass or you did something like that. But it's uh, but there's something interesting that happens when you run. The only way that I can describe it is you know the longest I've ever run. Uh, ever, and this was years ago, was 11 miles. And I remember getting done with that run and I felt like I had like a 10,000 mile stare. It was like just this sort of, there was something chemically happening in the brain where it was just so serene and lovely. Mm. Now it took a lot of work to get to that moment. That's probably why, you know, I, I don't do it anymore. Is this a so-called runner's high? Yeah, kind of like a runner's yeah. high, but it was, or it was, it was weird because it was kind of this refractory period. It was afterwards. It didn't happen to me when I was doing it. Oh, okay. It was sort mm. of like right after I finished and like, you know, you're you, coming down the you're mountain. You're coming so down. Yeah, yeah. And it was like mm. the, the sort of warmth of body and your muscle, everything just felt very tuned, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it was, it was really nice. Sometimes I can sort of approach that in other physical settings, but not like running. There's just something about running that's like really interesting. You know, Deacon Charlie, when I, when I was in college, I was, uh, I was not Catholic. I was not anything. I was pagan basically. And you called yourself a pagan. I don't know eth- what I call myself. Ethicist or, 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 or an ethical pagan, <laughs> yeah. I think is what you said. No, that's, that's yeah. uh, my good friend who, uh, who wrote the, uh, the introduction to my book. That's what he called me, which was really funny. Right. Cause I wanted you to know, ask he, you. He, he was I, like, well, you were, you were a good guy. It's just that you just didn't believe in anything. I wanted to ask right? you about the definition of ethical pagan, because I think we have a lot of ethical paganism as a, as a kind of a thought, a, 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 an idea. Hey, that's his definition. Man. Yeah. I was like, sounds good to me. But I, so, you know, there's a lot of suffering, mm. physical suffering in running. And believe it or not, I, I realize people watch like world-class marathons and these guys look like gazelles, but trust me, they are suffering at a level that's just like almost hard to imagine. It's just yeah. that they're, their bodies are so physically in tune and physically in shape and, and true, they have many physical gifts as well that they can like push through that. And so what I discovered, you know, I, I kept running for quite a while and then I became Catholic and I still did a few marathons after that. And it was very different the way I would take suffering uh, running a marathon once I had become Catholic because I would offer it up. Mm. So I would be, you know, in a marathon, let, let's say you're in shape and, you know, I obviously have some running talents. Nonetheless, you're still going to, um, no matter how good a shape you are, you're going to start suffering anywhere between mile 20 and 22, right? Uh, So-called. Far, far earlier from me, my yeah, friend. Yeah, it's called hitting the wall, okay. right? And this is if you're, if you're running the race like you're supposed to, you know, you didn't go out too fast or something like that. And... And so what I would start to do is I would already have in my mind, like people that I wanted to pray for, Mm. obviously family members, friends, uh, anybody I knew that was going through some difficult times, uh, just for clarity, uh, gratitude to God, all kinds of things. And it really made that last six miles so much more um, beautiful for me. That by the time I finished, um, it was just like, wow, that was awesome. So it wasn't just the experience of the marathon, which is always cool, as long as you're in shape to do it. 
but it became a, a spiritual thing for well, me. Well, it transcends your personal accomplishment in it, right? Because you're yeah. it's 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 uh, self donating. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's self emptying, and mm-hmm. that is a beautiful part of the of the Catholic life. Is yeah. that in everything that we do, we have that somewhere if we're if we're if we're you know doing it right. The other thing about running is um, back to prudence because you mentioned pace. That's something I'm not good at either, right? But the idea that if you, well, if you go out too hot, you're just going to blow up and you're, you're going to be done, uh, you know, too soon. So that kind of forcing mechanism of what is the right speed, right, to, 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 to do this? And then what's the right way, right, your body mechanics? There's a lot of awareness, at least this is what I found in running. For me, it's if, if I don't practice or if I don't focus on my gait, like the, the way that I'm stepping or whatever, then something that like is a little bit, it hurts a little bit right now, three miles from now is going to be unbearable, right? Because yeah. it builds. But that idea of, of, of pacing and prudence and really being conscious and aware, that's another thing, right? If you just go lift weights, it's like, okay, I got to get 10 of these things done, like 10 reps. But with running, it's like, you have to be focused on some level on this sort of like journey and I think that's also, uh, you know, a tie into the spiritual life. That's huge that you talk about that because I was thinking, you know, a couple of experiences of marathons where I was well-trained, mm-hmm. some marathons, not so much. And it's it's interesting too that you have to be really strict about the practice. So we call it the training as you're, as you're getting up to the marathon. And what I mean by that is it's like knowing your body, of course, and and being honest about the shape that you're in, but also because you're training well and you're training so much, you'll know, you'll have a very good window of knowing about what pace you can run, Mm. right? You'll know if if I do this too quickly at the start, I'm really going to be in trouble. You also know if you're going too slow. And, And so that practice, that constant practice um, it is what really gives you the confidence as you step to the line of knowing that I can do this, mm. right? I'm going to do this. It's going to be a good experience. I'm going to stay within, right, the confines of my where my body truly is. I remember my final marathon, which was the Boston Marathon, because I th- this is going to be like my retirement, right? I'm done. 2008 was a long time ago. And I just wasn't really well trained. And, and it brought such a a level of certainly physical discomfort, but but more than that, I was uncertain. Mm. I was like, I don't really know like how fast I could run, mm. and that ended up costing me. My my dear friend who actually wrote uh, the uh, introduction to the book for me is a great athlete, a great triathlete, and and he agreed to to go run this with mm. me, and and so I was like. I was like, I think I can run. I don't know, like eight minute per mile pace, and so oh, wow. And so, of course, at first, that was fine. And then I hit about mile 20, and I started feeling like cramps in my legs. I'm like, oh, man, I've got six miles to go, and I'm starting to cramp. That is bad news. And and so he was so generous, and he, he stayed with me. You know, it's like I would, like, limp, walk, jog, gait, you know, terrible-looking form. <laughs> to the next tent over here and they'd be like giving me stuff and massaging my legs. I'd get back out there and it'd be okay for about, you know, 30 seconds. And are you like supplement, are you you, like doing the salt and bananas and stuff like that as you, as you run? I I am, but you know, conditioning is, all that stuff helps, of course, Mm. but your conditioning is the main thing. 
So if you're not in the right condition and and you go too fast or you're not prepared, um, bananas and salts and all that just aren't going to help you, right? So those things are are necessary, but they're they're more like what I would call like enhancements to you if you're already in very good shape. If you're not in very good shape and you go out and run a marathon, it really isn't going to matter mm-hmm. what you take into your body during the marathon. You're going to run, run into very difficult situations, uh, legs course. cramping, you know, other kinds of things failing. For me, it would be mild too. You know, you can, yeah. you, you, you can tie a bunch of virtues into, into running too. The other one that I think about, which mm. is for me, is humility. Mm. Because when I think about the times that I've run in a group, there's always this sense of the temptation to stay with the group mm-hmm. like the and then, you know, if you're in, inside of my head, which is a dangerous place for a lot of people, perhaps. But if you're in my head, you're going, well, you, you know, you got to you got to run with the pack. You, mm-hmm. you know, you got to like because what what will people think? You know, you can't keep <laughs> up like all these different things. And of course, if you succumb to that then you can run yourself out, right? Or burn you yourself out. So like that sense of like, no, maybe it's prudence, maybe it's humility, but recognizing your own limitations yeah. and saying like, hey, this is the way that I finish this race, right? Yeah, I'm finishing the race is like, the, we're in one right now spiritually, right? We get to, we, I was just talking to my wife this morning about, um, uh, we, we, we pray the liturgy of the hours and, um, and today's uh, saint is um, St. Martin of Tours. Hmm. It's today is his feast day. And the story in the liturgy of the hours is like him coming to his deathbed, basically. And his religious brothers are around him. He's like, I'm getting ready to go. Like, this is the end. I'm about to hit the finish line. And they're like, no, no, you can't leave and whatever. And he basically chides them and says like, no, this is what this is about. Right. It's like I'm about to hit. But then he recounts this massive temptation he got from the devil, like Hmm. right at the very end. And you know, I equate those massive temptations with maybe that pain in the mile 21 or 22. It's like, that's the place you want to stop. Like you want to stop at that moment. And as much as you've been trained and you've practiced and whatever it is, there's like this great temptation to just give it up. And it's, you know, that's a, that's a real thing that happens in the spiritual life at the very end. That's, I'm convinced that's why the Hail Mary prayer is what it is. You know what I mean? It's at the, at the hour of our death because the devil's last shot, you know, and he's going to, he's going to try to do it. And so I think about those moments of the the peak of an extra of a workout or mile 21 in a marathon or whatever as practice for that moment, because whatever temptation we get at the very last second of our lives, it's going to be big. I, my, that's my guess. Cause it's, the, it's his last shot to grab you. So all of these things to me are like practices for that moment. And trust me, you know, back to even like world-class marathoners. And I realize again, when, when people watch them running, you, you, you go, how, how could they're, they're running like four minute and under four minute and 40 seconds per mile pace. They are flying. Mm. Trust me when I tell you, you may not see it on their faces, but they're facing the same temptation to stop at mile 24 or 25 that you and I would. They mm-hmm. are in severe pain. Severe pain. And going through their mind as well, maybe for them, it wouldn't be like stopping, but it'd be like, I could just back off a little, a little bit, bit and man, it'll hurt a little bit less. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I may not uh, get the gold medal here, but Hey, you know, bronze isn't too bad. Mm. Trust me. All those temptations are going through their heads. So no matter where that's like, and if, if I equated those world-class marathon or two saints, right? Sure. No matter where you are, those temptations are going to be there. Absolutely. No doubt about it. Everything in a way kind of reflects and points to God, right? And we, if we mm. choose to look at it that way. And, and, and I definitely think that there's, it's not for everybody, but there's a lot there, 
you know, in the area of, of physical fitness and in the area of running. One of the things that I wanted to, to chat with you about, Brett, especially given your line of work, and by the way, the book you mentioned is called Your Pro-Life Bottom Line. And we'll talk a little bit about this because I love just the insight of your work is about approaching the demand side of the equation mm-hmm. as much as it is the supply side, right? The pro-life movement's been very focused on, you know, helping to make abortion unavailable, which of course it should be, but there's this sort of added element that we don't think about often, which is what about making people not want one, mm-hmm. right? So I love all of that. But in the context of this week, right, we just had mm-hmm. a midterm election in this country. And, you know, you can say we took some massive lumps, right, in this country relative to the the question of abortion. Mm-hmm. And some people may, you know, be prone to despair or lack of hope or whatever or other temptations like we've been talking about. But I'm interested just in your view of what went down this week, right? And as you and I talked about even preparing for this, like this show is not the, – the only topic that I have on the show that's off limits is partisan stuff, like, you know, vote for X. But at the same time, issues I want to discuss, right, which is obviously we're pro-life and we can look at things objectively and go, hey, we, we, we kind of – we took it on the chin right on Tuesday mm-hmm. in, a, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you view this? And especially like considering the state you're in right now, which just enshrined into its constitution, um, you know, basically the right to an abortion up until the moment that that child comes, you know, leaves the womb. It's very interesting. I, I just wrote an article this morning or finished the article this morning for our newsletter. And one of my points was that we have, you know, I finished it. My last line to be continued next week is mm. Houston. We have a marketing problem in pro-life. And so I use this as an example. I was like, Kentucky. So Kentucky is a conservative state, you know, politically. And, and they had one of their, it was called Amendment 2, which was trying to, I can't remember the words exactly, but it was trying to enshrine some kind of, you know, you, you can't do abortion, or you can't fund abortion into the Constitution. And the voters uh, rejected it. Yeah, it failed. Mm-hmm. And they had a quote in an article. This this was a, a Kentucky newspaper. I believe it was Louisville. And it was, it was very interesting to me as a marketer because they were using as an example a lady who they said, oh, in her front yard of her house, you know, she's got all the little, the little signs for the politicians. And they're all the Republican candidates, right? Mm-hmm. But on this particular amendment issue, this ballot issue, she said something to the effect of, oh, but, you know, that I voted no. Because it's always my choice. Wow. We as Catholics, you know, we, we're used, of course, if you work full time in the pro-life movement like I do, you're used to hearing all the time, my body, my choice, a slogan that's been around forever. But words matter. And I was thinking about it and I was like, okay, 50 years now. So I don't know how many generations that is, a few generations uh, this kind of, these kinds of slogans, these kinds of words have been working through our society constantly. And as a marketer, particularly when you start to think about what branding is yeah. and branding does come from, you know, branding a cow. That's right. Branding an image onto some, in this case, searing. In, in, in a human being, yeah. you're searing words, you're searing ideas into people's minds. And you start to think, you know, even for people of goodwill, has this, has this been going on for so long? People have been hearing this for so long, my body, my choice, slogans like that. 
that it has branded into a part of their mind, where even if they know, as Catholics as we all know, that that is that abortion is objectively evil, it is the murder of an innocent human being. Even if we know that, when we go to the ballot box, are some people still saying no? You know, it, it, and I, I think we have to start um, as a. I'm speaking as a marketer. I think as a marketer, if we want to win the marketing battle, I think we have to start saying it's very possible that this is ingrained so strongly in so many people's minds, even many people of goodwill. Do we need to take a different approach? Mm. And that could be a lot of things. And I am not suggesting for a moment that we should, you know, have or support any kind of pro-abortion laws. I'm not. What I'm saying is, is, you know, from a marketing perspective, it seems to me that the pro-life movement has led, uh, or the core argument of the pro-life movement from a marketing perspective, again, has been about the moral issue of abortion. It's wrong to kill a preborn human being. And I'm starting to think, yes, that's true, objectively true. But if it doesn't work from a marketing perspective in terms of persuading people, mm. Is there a different way to get to that same conclusion, but that you might need to market it differently? So as I suggest in my book, and, and now I'll probably write a follow-up to this book, suggesting even more strongly, is that I believe that it's quite possible that there is a pro an approach to that, and it has to do with putting much more emphasis on empowering the woman. How... Um, choosing life, as we would say in pro-life, it's probably not how I would market it, but how choosing life is actually something that accrues to the benefit of the woman's life, right? Yeah. And I think there's something powerful there. I, th I think we would have to work a lot on how do you craft that message and how do you have the branding campaign that has to run not just for a couple of weeks, but has to run for week after week, month after month, year after year, because branding takes a long time because you're, especially if someone has in their mind, like we were talking about the, the lady in Kentucky that voted a certain way, you're not just going to, you're not going to unbrand that and suddenly replace it with someone, something else. I, I don't care how strong your arguments are. It takes time. It takes time to replace that. Or if you're not replacing it to, to come in on top of it. Yeah. Where even though she still has that one belief, this new belief comes in and is now her preferred mm. belief. And I think this is something that we need to start having a deeper conversation about. I'll give you an example. So this will probably be my follow-up article next week. It is true that you'll hear in pro-life, um, you know, things like love them both. And, and you know what I mean by that? Of course, love the baby and love the woman. But as a market, I would say, you know, usually you can measure things. There's there are different ways you can measure things about whatever someone says. Is that actually what they're doing? And so kind of a thought experiment I have, and someone could actually do this, though I don't think I'm going to do it. But I would say if it's really true that we're loving them both, and, and let me just say, to, to make it easy, we'll put it into metrics, 50% here and 50% there, Right. Um, I, I could take like a little, I could take like a little uh, spreadsheet or a piece of paper. I could just draw like a line and have two columns. And on my left is um, 
uh, focus on the right to life of the preborn human being. On my right is focus on loving, empowering, and supporting the woman who's experiencing an unexpected pregnancy. And then I'll go back of the last 12 months and I will collect everything that has been written, you know, blog posts, news articles, magazines, and everything that's been said on podcasts and TVs and all that. And you add up all the sentences that have been said and you put them into either the left column, you know, how many sentences were about the right to life of the premier human being and how many sentences were about the supporting the woman. Lopsided. Totally lopsided, I think. Now, I don't, I don't know what the exact number no, is, but I would a, say it's probably like 90, 10 I or something so like too. that. I would think so, too. Yeah. And I think that says a lot. So when we say, when we say love them both, I think for people back to our woman in Kentucky, um, people hear that and they go, yeah, but I don't see it. I don't see it. We go, well, yeah, we have, but, you know, we got like 3,000 pregnancies across the United States. And even, you know, Dean Charles, I work with those centers, right? And even for me, it's like, yes, there's, of course, there's support. There's love. No doubt about that. I don't question the hearts and the intentions of those people at all. But is there true, like, empowerment? So if we said from a Maslow's hierarchy perspective, are we coming alongside these women and mentoring them and working with them to help them understand, like, their talents, their temperaments, what they could achieve in life? And then walking with them to get there. Are we doing that? Mm. Really? Mm -mm. I think the answer is, broadly speaking, no. Are there exceptions? Yes. I write about one of the centers in the, in the book that's, that I believe is a strong exception. But in general, no, we're not doing that. I thought about the other day, and, and this is a hard, it's a hard teaching. It's hard for me to, it's like I was, it's funny how the Holy Spirit hits you. I was you know, Jesus said, and you, you know, scripture is more accurate than I do, but, but he does say, you know, there, there's one passage where it's like your, your mother and your brothers are here. Mm-hmm. And he comes out and he just points to the believers in the crowds that here are my mother and my mm-hmm. brothers and my sisters. Those who do the will of God. Yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. I thought, man, um, in my own life, so I have three children, they're all adults now, but when I look at these women facing unexpected pregnancies, and think about them as my blood, right? What I think about empowering them in the same way I think about my own children. And then importantly, if the answer to that is yes, and right now I'll be honest, it's not yes for me. Would I be willing to sacrifice time, talent, and treasure mm. in order to empower them mm. to get to where they want to go? Mm. And if I'm just being really honest with myself, the answer is no, yeah. I'm not there yet. Am I willing to help them with short-term needs? particularly things that, that take a financial burden, of course, right? I think most of us are. Most of us are, you know, I often think about um, the Good Samaritan and it's like, well, is, is, is putting that, that Samaritan up on the horse, taking to the end and, and, you know, giving extra money if you need more, you know, if, if you need more, I'll give it to you on the way back when I come back. Um, is that just about short-term material help? Or is there a deeper message there about, no, this is about going all the way, mm-hmm. like Jesus does for us, all the way. All the way. And, and really putting together programs and, and committing ourselves to that. It's, I, uh, I, well, there's, it's a, there's, a, there's a ton there to unpack. I do I, I 100% agree with you that it is about going all the way. We do, my wife and I do a lot of ministry in the homeless mm-hmm. uh, area and here in Los Angeles. It's, a, it's at a crisis kind of point. 
but our model is relational, right? Mm-hmm. Our model is once you become one of our families, well, you're family. Mm-hmm. So, yes, there are material things and milestones along the way. If you're on the street, well, let's get you off the street. That's a motel voucher, a crisis place, a shelter. If you're in a shelter, well, let's get you in a temporary housing. If you're in temporary housing, let's find you permanent. So there's milestone moments. But if you zoom out, what we're trying to do is say, no, I'm just here. I'm accompanying you. Mm -hmm. There's definitely that also in the pro-life world. And some of it is super understandable because the urgency of someone about to lose their life and you can potentially avert that is a powerful motivation. It's the reason why people run into burning buildings. It's like, well, the building's on fire, mm-hmm. right? You're not thinking about like, you know, gee, am I breaking the furniture or am I, you know, uh, whatever, right? Are zoning laws the right way because we shouldn't have had the fire to begin with? Like you're just, the, the building's on fire. But there's definitely that sense of the urgency of the child's life being such a driver and such a motivator. And you want to acknowledge and affirm and support that. But at the same time, I think what you're saying is super important for us to have that conversation because what you mentioned about the woman in Kentucky is true. The branding is so deep and is so pronounced that it's now reflexive. And that Mm. is like the zenith of all marketing. It's like when I walk into the store and I walk out with Colgate and somebody goes, why'd you buy that? And you go, I don't know. That is gold in the branding world. It's like, okay, great. It's now part of the water table. Mission accomplished. I've all of my frequency and my, you know, ad creative and everything is like nailed it where you don't even know why you're doing it. Perfect. Okay. Deacon Char, this just happened to me like in the last year. So I finally decided, look, I'm from Oklahoma. I live in Texas. It's like, gotta have a truck, right? And so when I finally decided I was going to do that, I'm going to get a truck. I mean, I, I didn't do research. I knew it was Ford F-150. Ford F-150. That's what I'm getting. That's what I have. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't buy it. So so it's like, trust me, branding works on marketers too. It's like, I even knew. It's like, of course I know. I know it worked on me. And I was like, yeah, I don't care. It's so powerful. I'm still going to get it. And I I went and got it. So I got my Ford F-150. It's very powerful. It's very effective. Let's tease that out a little bit though, because Mm -hmm. the other thing that I've noticed, and I could be wrong, you're the expert here, but- The other thing that I've noticed is much more, two things. One is the um, embracing of abortion as a term and embracing of abortion in, maybe not embracing, but the no longer arguing what abortion is. I've seen that maybe really pronounced in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, where much of the apologetic strategy was what is abortion Mm -hmm. and all of this. And I'm not, and that still works to a degree, but the, the conversations I have now with pro-choicers, and I work with pro-choicers, I, my clients are pro, like, that is, I live in pro-choiceville, okay? The conversations I have with those guys are no longer about that. It's about this other thing now, which is being framed as freedom, right? And attached to that is this sense that the government should have nothing to do with your mm. personal decisions. Like, those three things— the no longer contesting sort of what abortion is or not focusing too much on it. The idea of freedom as a driver, you don't want people telling you what to do, a very branded American, you know, ideal. And then consequently, this sort of libertarian streak, which is nobody should be telling you what to do and they shouldn't be in that room. Like those things to me are newer than the traditional, Mm -hmm. you know, moral kind of arguments like, 
killing people is bad. Let's talk about that. So I think each of those are part of what you just described with what's going on with this woman in Kentucky. I agree. They're very strong. And marketers, marketing is so interesting because you, it's not that marketers, myself included, don't think about the shoulds, mm. right? Or the oughts, especially if, you have, if you're a faithful Catholic, you're absolutely thinking about that all the time. But marketers have to come into a market, and if you're marketing something, an idea, a product, a service, you have to be real about where your, your consumers, your prospects are in terms of how they think. And I agree with you, absolutely, this is where people's minds are. And I'll nuance it even further, and this, this is very difficult, I think, for Catholics to hear, because we just know that objectively, that is a human being from the moment of conception. We know that. Yet, I do believe that there's the psychological thing going on in people's minds about, well, and they, they may not say it like this, but I, I think when you look at how people's opinions change along the spectrum of where they're okay with abortion, right? So they'll be okay with it the first 12 weeks, but 12 to 24, they're not okay. Or, you know, and, and people like are all over that spectrum. And so I think there's this, this thing going on in people's minds psychologically where there's, they make these trade-offs between what you were talking about, those very different, uh, those various kinds of freedoms, which are very important to them. And then they bring in this thing. It's like, well, my, these, these things I believe so strongly about these freedoms outweigh that life when mm -hmm. it's eight weeks, mm -hmm. outweigh that life when it's 12 weeks. Getting out here is 16 weeks. Yikes. Mm, yeah. Not so sure. Right. And I think here we have, you know, how many adult Americans, let's just say it's 250 million adult Americans in our country. And I think, I think every, not everybody, but I think millions of them have that kind of confusion <laughs> going on. Now, I, I say it's a confusion because I think it's a moral confusion. But as a marketer, I come in and I go, well, that's just real. It's how it is. So what can I do in order to come into that and, and not just, if I come in and, and, and my product is just to convince them that, well, you need to, you need to understand that it's a life from conception and that's the way it is. You need to believe that. That's very tough because a lot of people, it's going to be a clanging gong. Yeah. Them. They're not. They're not going to get that. And there's, they won't even, they'll shut down as soon as I start it would the, be, it, the it, conversation. It would be interesting to kind of flip the script a little bit and lean into the idea of choice, right? Because mm -hmm. the choice is anti-choice or for choice, at least as it's been framed now. But it'd be interesting to kind of think about it as like, no, this is all about you having much more choices, mm -hmm. right? The choice of your child's contribution to the world, yeah. profession, uh, you know, areas of interest, uh, you know, all of the kind of future facing stuff, right. To really lean into that idea of choice and say, this is actually the more thriving, fruitful choice. And it, and it opens up a whole panorama of new choices that you can make. I don't see a lot of, a lot of that that's, that's actually happening, but I do think that you, what you're basically saying is in some ways, this idea of knowing your consumer, yeah. knowing where they're at, and then messaging to them in the most appropriate way. It's like very classic marketing kind of stuff, but I'm not sure that we've had a lot of people like you sort of leading this, you know, kind of march, which is why I think voices like yours are so important because you're willing to look 
at the whole dynamic in a different way. And I think we definitely need to do that because the one area I would push back on you on is that I think something along that continuum of 10 weeks, 16 weeks, 24 weeks, I think we're increasingly pushing that out. Mm. And I think something like what happened on Tuesday in Montana is evidence of that, Mm. right? That proposition, which was all about, well, you know, if a child survives abortion and they're, they're Mm. born alive, uh, do we take care of them? And the voters in Montana, which is not, you Mm. know, Chicago, they said no. And to me, it's like, that shocked me. That was like, we're in a new kind of place. At least that's what I thought. Yeah, I, I think so. It's that, that one too, when I read that, you know, part of me goes, was it, was it a, a, a confusion? Yeah. Was it, was it just confusion? Was it, was the, whatever the actual uh, proposition was, was it not worded in a way yeah. where the voters clearly understood what they were voting for? From my understanding, from talking to some people in Kansas, that's what happened when that thing was just resoundly <laughs> defeated. It's like people were shocked. But then I, th- I think in a lot of the exit polling, when they were saying, well, what did that mean to you? There was, there was confusion, mm. chaos. So, mm. so marketing too is about clear definitions, making sure that you're positioning the messaging in such a way that it, that it, that you're clear about exactly what we're talking about. And I think in pro-life, there's been some challenges about uh, working with legislators to make sure that they word the, those things in a way that it doesn't become a word salad. Yeah. Right? People don't like word salad because then they're not sure. It's easy to vote it, no. Yeah. It's yeah. easy to vote no because you're not exactly sure what you're voting for or voting against. Mm-hmm. And then if you're not sure, you're just more likely to say, well, they blew it in the messaging. So bad on them. I'm not going to vote for that. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not saying that's what happened uh, in Montana. I'm not sure. But I'd like to think it's more that than people that would really just say that that's okay. Yeah, the optimistic view. I agree with you. I yeah. did read the actual proposition. It seemed very clear in mm-hmm. the way it was written. But to your point, who knows what the marketing was? Mm-hmm. Who knows how they messaged that? Who knows how much they spent on it? Who, who knows how much the forces against it spent on it, right? So th- I think this one to me feels more like it's in the execution maybe, the whatever the marketing the message was to support that proposition because the proposition is like one sentence you know what i mean it says and it it is a pretty binary thing at least the way that i read it hmm. but maybe the messaging around it was such that it was like i don't know i'm confused uh, you well, know it's such a challenge now in our culture which marketing just just suffers from such um gosh nobody nobody has an attention span anymore right so so marketers are sitting there going well i, I can't talk about this complex issue and give it the the airtime that it really deserves in order to 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 lay out the different options and then show why this one is the best one right because that might take 5 minutes <laughs> and all i've got is 20 seconds and i think the the danger there is some of these issues that are so important and so complex just are not going to be able to be explained in sound bites and slogans and but but they kind of go, well, we don't have any choice because we know that most people won't listen, especially yeah. the younger generation. Very interesting to see how the votes uh, I saw on TV this morning that 18 to 29 year olds, and I don't know about specific issues, but they were just saying, you know, Democrat, Republican, about two thirds voted uh, Democrat, one third Republican. And I think that's very interesting because it says to me, it said, well, I don't want to 
it's a complex issue, but mm-hmm. I don't want to simplify it too much. But the the messaging around this particular issue that that I work in is not resonating strongly uh, with that group, and so that's very concerning because as a marketer, I go, this <laughs> kind of uh, kind of uh, strange, but it's like I I think about you know every day. Um, more and more young people come into that voting block or into that consumer block and more and more people at the, at the, at the old end of the spectrum come off of it. Come off of it. It's concerning, right? Oh, sure. Um, Called burning platform. Sure. And this would be like, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's probably thousands, tens of thousands of people every day. That kind of shift is happening. Mm. (laughs) It's like, whew. Uh, so we've really got our work cut out for us. I have another thought when I, I wonder what you make of this, which is we've talked about sort of the issue. We've talked about the approach or you could call it a strategy. We've talked about some of the the kind of, um, you know, messaging or creative conceits we might pick to convey this. One thing that I think we've also need to look at is that the way that we relay all of our pro-life information tends to be, from my experience, very didactic, mm-hmm. right? It's like, here is the educational kind of aspect to it, right? Or this like, you know, again, it's like I'm learning how to like make creme brulee or how to mm-hmm. like, you know, know how to use a socket wrench. It's very didactic. I don't see enough of story. And I think story is in a way, even though it's counterintuitive sometimes and illogical sometimes, story moves the needle with people in a very big way. And I wonder if what you're describing with this, like supporting women, showing them that their lives can thrive, really being present, really being there for the long haul, if that can be manifested through story in a much bigger way than we currently do, right? We're good at ads. We're good at, again, the debatey kind of stuff, the apologetic, the read this tract, like we're good at that stuff, but I just haven't seen enough emphasis on the idea of storytelling for conveyance of some of these things in maybe not such a direct way. Maybe it's an indirect way, right? Um, as a way to move hearts and minds on, on this particular issue. Am I wrong? Story is huge. So let me give you an example. Uh, in part two of my book, I, I, I kind of do a case study on one particular organization that I mentioned a while ago. It's called Thrive Express Women's Healthcare. And as I lay out, and I, I laid out in a, a talk that I did recently, I was like, first we have to look at their results. And I'm just going to measure their results against the competitor. The competitor in this case, as, in the, as, is, as is the case in many cities, is Planned Parenthood. And so I just come in and go, well, as a business guy, I go, what were the results? Like, how many customers did you get and how many did they get? And what you see is, is this like, Marketers love to see it from a market share perspective. It's like, well, Planned Parenthood's over about a five to 10 year period, basically down, 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 down and thrives up, 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 up. It's almost like you could say you're taking share. Absolutely. It's like you're you're moving clients from Planned Parenthood spreadsheet over to your spreadsheet. Beautiful. You know, marketers are high fiving all around the table. It's like that's what we love to see, man. And and then, of course, I'm going, well, how did they do that? Right. Getting back to your comment about story, to me, the, the one thing, look, they have a great product and they have empowering services and, and all those wonderful things. But, but I would say they're also very good pregnancy centers across our country that also have those things. Yeah. But don't have near the success. success. What, did this, what did this one center do that was absolutely different? 
Well, they adopted a a brand advertising campaign Mm. and ran it um, absolutely relentlessly in terms of reach and frequency in St. Louis for years. And what you started to see happen is the effect of that was that young women in St. Louis, and this is the key point, young women in St. Louis began to look at Thrive as their preferred women's health care organization instead of Planned Parenthood. Doesn't mean it, re- it doesn't mean Planned Parenthood was pushed out. Planned Parenthood's there. But Thrive came in and basically came over the top and became the go-to provider of women's health care. And, and so the, you hear that and you kind of go, well, okay, so with my pregnancy center, I'll, I'll just do the same thing. I'll just do the advertising. But when you look at the advertising that Thrive does, it reminds me, as I, I talked about in my talk uh, last month, it reminds you of what Apple does. Mm. As I said in my talk, it's incredible what the iPhone does. I'll we'll stick with the iPhone because Apple persuades. There's a new book called Persuasion. Apple persuades those young people to want that phone even before they're old enough to get the phone. In the same way, when you look at Thrive's advertisements, Thrive's advertisements um, basically persuade those young women to think that if and when they ever face an unexpected pregnancy, they're going to call Thrive first. Yeah. Right? So how do they do that? The advertising creates an aspirational story, right? And, and iPhone does the same thing. iPhone, it could be around being cool, right? right? But it creates a very powerful aspirational story, a narrative within which those young people want to step in and be part of that and identify with it. Being cool, right? And so young people, even before their parents would think that, yeah, you're old enough to have a phone, they're already being bombarded with the Apple advertisements, right? They're like, that's cool. That's cool. That's cool. I want to be part of that story. I want to be part of those images. I want to be part of that music. I want to be part of that words. That's me. I identify with that. You think they're out there looking at the specs of the iPhone? No. So to your, to your point about didactic, it's like, I agree with you. We, we come at this so often about like, can't, can't you see people who are like pro-abortion? It's like we line up the arguments here on this side of the table. It's clearly in our favor. We just don't know how you could support that. And as a marketer, I go like, that's not how it works. People are more complex than that. They, they step into stories. And if you create that aspirational story that they identify with, and very importantly, you, you have to win that story in their minds before they even need, even need what you want offer Mm. even before they need what you offer that's right you have a great chance of winning the uh the pie the the survey this year piper sandler survey of teenagers in america uh this year 87 percent of american teenagers own an iphone wow that is dominant and it tells you the power of story because i come out of the cell phone industry that's my background in high tech and i can tell you if you did like a breakdown of an iPhone right here and you put what's a competitive phone, the Samsung galaxy next to it. And we just started going through features. Yeah. We just started going through the features and even like uh, the different kinds of components in the phone. iPhone would probably get smoked. It would. Yeah. I know for a fact it would. And back when iPhone was introduced, I would tell people, it's like, look, much of what's in the iPhone is actually behind the industry. Yet 
here they are selling their product for four or five X retail price of what the Ecobetters did. I mean, there's no other explanation for that other than brand marketing. They've transcended it where it's, it's now attached to a lot of things that are beyond the actual product itself. It is attached to lifestyle. It is attached to uh, some kind of social currency. It is attached to story. I mean, in fact, actually their, their latest campaign is all about how the iPhone can help you tell your story, right? Mm -hmm. Shoot your movie, do your adventure thing, right? So they've, they've been able to transcend that, but it's not about the feature. And I think that is a good way to look at this, right? We're very feature oriented marketers, super feature rich. It's like, how could you possibly, this has more pixels. How could you possibly want the iPhone? This is a lot faster processor. It's like, it's, it's black and white and yet 87% go, I don't care. Like the woman in Kentucky going, yeah, I get it, but I'm still going to do this. Right. So there's something there that we need to tease out. We need to have these kind of conversations. And you said something early that I think we kind of glossed over it, but I I, want to just kind of press on it a little bit. And that is that, you know, in these kind of conversations, we have a sense as pro-life people of, of um, sort of, qualifying or saying, no, 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 I'm not telling you this doesn't work or it's a very noble thing and we should keep doing that, right? There's this sense of sort of trying to prevent any sort of defensiveness because people who hear a new idea, uh, some of them go to, go to, you know, a place where they're like, well, maybe you're not, you know, pro-life, but I think we need innovation in this space. And sometimes when you introduce the concept of innovation, people freak out. Mm -hmm. They're like, you know, so like we have to almost do marketing to our own side about what it means to rethink these paradigms, because what we're doing is not what thrive. The example you brought up, it's right. just not working to that degree. And we can just keep hitting it with the hammer and just go, uh, or we can look at it again and say, well, maybe there's a shift here and there's a chip change. So we need to think about because what we're doing can be more effective and right now it isn't in some of these cases. I tell you, you know, Deacon Charlie, earlier we were talking about how 50 years of abortion being um, legal had kind of created this brand within our culture, even with people of goodwill about, well, maybe it's okay, you know, or confusion around it. And I think that also applies to pro-life. Mm. People have gotten used to this is what pro-life is and this is how you do pro-life and, and things like, and, and please let me qualify this. I'm not saying these are bad things, but what is pro-life? Oh, well, it's doing the March for Life. It's praying outside of an abortion facility. It's uh, calling your congressman and congresswoman and saying, you know, vote for these things. And I kind of feel like, and, and I saw some of the reactions to this Tuesday's results. And, you know, so obviously I'm on the list of all the different pro-life organizations and I, they get these emails about their reaction to what happened. And it looks like the solution is more of the same. I was like, okay, what's that definition of insanity? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like, okay, I think we need, it's been long enough, right? Uh, 50 years is, is certainly a very good data set where you should make some, you can make some very good determinations about what's effective and what isn't. Isn't it time that we really consider some different approaches? Mm. Again, I'm not saying those things that we're doing are bad things. They're certainly good from a spiritual perspective, no doubt about it. But from just a, from just a measurements perspective, you know, me as a businessman, I'm like, well, you got to measure it. Is it working? And so when Planned Parenthood comes out in their most recent annual report, and their number of abortions increased again, 
we should sit there and go, well, maybe we need a different approach. Mm-hmm. It seems to me we, we, we work on the margins. It's like we, we go out and we have some successes here and we have some successes there and we, we raise our hands and we go hallelujah and, and you know, we save some lives and we help. It's, it's beautiful. I agree. But if I just come in and look at it from a macro perspective, are we winning in sense of an industry? No, there, there, there's no measurement whatsoever that says we're winning or even making significant progress. And I think one of the things we get caught up in, and I admit this is very difficult, you hear this all the time from, you know, pro-lifers. It's like, well, no matter what it costs, one life is so precious to God that even if it's a million dollars, it's worth it. Now, I agree. However, um, for that same million dollars, if I could save 10,000 lives instead of one life, I want the program that's going to do that, don't you? And we never get to that. We never mm. do that part of the analysis enough. It's like, so, so Mr. and Mrs. Pro-Life Donor, if I bring you two programs here and each of them cost a million dollars, which would you choose? The one that saves one life or the one that saves 10,000 lives? I would hope that 100 out of 100 people would say the one that saves 10,000 lives. That seems totally logical. But for some reason, we, we don't get to that conversation it, enough. And that's what I, I'm proposing in my book often is like, in part three, I talk about that. It's like, we need to start demanding that programs that are coming out and saying, you, you know, you should invest your, your assets of time, talent, and treasure into this program. We need to start demanding that they show those kinds of results. They yeah. show progress, that they win, right? That's why it's a, it's a, it's a business concept. It's just... You know that as a businessman, it's like, well, we have to win and we have to, we have to have a product and service that provides so much higher benefits for our customers that our customers choose us over our competition. That's why, that's why I think I'm super uh, encouraged and bullish on the idea of, of baptizing and Christianizing secular things, including marketing, business, et cetera. And in certain sectors, it's just an unpopular conversation to have. But even if we positioned the whole thing with Planned Parenthood as how do we steal share from Planned Parenthood? Don't even, I'm not even going to talk to you about abortion. I'm going to talk about we're Nike, they're Reebok. How do we steal their share? That's the whole conversation and get into a room with really smart people to think about that. Don't get caught up in the weeds of what the catechism says or whatever. That is not happening enough. And it could be so powerful to do. I'm very heartened by my friend, Lila Rose. You probably Mm -hmm. know her. Um, You know, she's got this idea for a new media company and it's storytelling based and it's kind of lifestyle based and it's, it's not on the nose. It's much more pull than push, right? Mm -hmm. Something like that. I don't know if that could have been born 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Mm. That's the kind of stuff I think we need to, and that doesn't mean to your point, abandon the other stuff. Like, great, leave that there. Sure. Great. But we want to do this other thing. To me, all of this, in a way, maybe people get offended by this, but in a way is a little bit of scarcity mentality. There's a little bit of that. Like we're sitting there with our little cup in our hand and like, where if I wanted to launch the the next iPhone, there's, you know, we dream in color. And what do you want? And like, yeah, let's go do that study and let's, you know, hire the crazy guy living in a hut somewhere because he's the greatest creative in the world. And yeah, I know he hasn't worked in a corporate setting in 20 years and doesn't matter because he can give us that one insight. 
we need to bring these secular and marketing and all these modalities into the equation and baptize them for the purposes of the work that we're doing rather than look suspiciously at some of those things. Because I've been in rooms where the question you asked about, you know, are we successful? Like people would chide you for that. They're like, how dare you? Because we, we saved the, the, it's the pregnancy center that's got like 10 babies that they can have pictures of in the lobby. Amazing. But we just lost 987,000. Right. So it's like, it's like, to me, it's a, it's, it's a scare. It could be a scarcity, you know, sort of way of, of viewing the world. I think it's, I think you're spot on. I think it's huge. It's interesting you say that uh, when I was having a conversation this week with Bridget Van Means, who's the vision leader of Thrive, you know, we started talking about, it really came from her. She was like, $1 billion. And what does she mean by that? She's like, well, okay, Planned Parenthood, I think their annual budget or in their annual report, they reported like $1.7 billion or something like that of, of revenue. And of course, they use all that revenue to, to run their business. We're going to counter that $1 billion. We need to get there. We need to do that. Now, to your point, that is, that's the kind of thinking that has never really existed yeah. in pro-life. Yeah. It, it's like, it's, a, it's, it's, it's this scattering, a diffusion of thousands of different ministries, probably, you know, I, I was trying to think, what is the largest budget? of a pro-life organization. I'm, I'm spitballing here a little bit, but I think it's like $20 million annually. Could be students for life. If I got that wrong, whatever, it's something like that. How does a $20 million organization stand against a $1.7 billion organization? The answer is they don't. That's just not, it just doesn't work, right? In any industry, by the way. And so, okay, money matters. Money is energy. It moves things. I think of it spiritually as prayer. Mm-hmm. And, and Bridget's point was, look, God is going to supply this if we pull together and prayerfully come up with the strategies that can win. That's right. Because you will draw, the philanthropists are there. Deacon Charlie, they're there, but they're not fools. They're not just going to lay down capital on something that's just a bunch of, you know, uh, rainbows and wishes and, and good feelings and sentimentality. They're not going to do that. They didn't become philanthropists on the for-profit side of the house by making those kinds of foolish decisions. They want to invest in something that from their experience base, they know has the possibility of scaling and eventually beating Planned Parenthood, right? So our whole thing with Thrive is to work with them, Hero Community is working with them, to make Thrive the national counter brand to Planned Parenthood mm. over time because we don't have one. Absolutely. And when I sit down with philanthropists all the time, it's going to be, if not the first question, it's going to be within the first five questions, Brett, where is our national answer to Planned Parenthood? We don't have We don't one. have one. We don't even have close to one. Is the, the right. closest would be the Catholic Church. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think, you know, when, when you look at business But that's models, a big idea, Brett. It's I mean, a big, idea, a big one, idea. But I'm going to look at Thrive. It's like, well- Thrive did this, as I was talking earlier, their results in St. Louis, it, that's a big city, right? It wasn't like, you'd be a little concerned. It's like, well, they achieved this in a town of 50,000 people. No, they achieved it in one of the top 25 cities in the United States. And so if, you, if you're on the for-profit side of the house and you, <clears throat> you went in and you discovered, uh, I don't know, Bob's hamburger stand that had come in and done this in a big city and they beat like McDonald's, you'd be like, if you were growth oriented, you'd be like, 
well, we want to we want to like take that playbook. We want to go out Study and franchise it, it or whatever, and get this thing out there, and we're going to make a ton of money, right? So, in the same way, let's take this out there. And this, in this case, it's not making a ton of money, but it's empowering a ton of women. It's it's saving a ton of lives because I look. I'm a marketer. It's it's I. After 30 years of marketing, I agree. I see most things through marketing lens. Can't help it after a while, right? But the way I look at it, it's like, look, this woman, uh, she's in a situation and she has a choice, right? Just like you go out and whatever you're in the market for right now, she's in the market. So the way our society works, um, she has a choice of choosing life for her child or choosing an abortion. As a marketer, I come in and, and my product and what I represent is choosing life. What do I do to make that product so attractive that she's going to, that, you know, 99 out of 100 women are going to choose that? Right now, we as a movement, we don't think about it like that. We don't. We, you're saying very didactic. It's like we're, we're trying to teach and educate. And, and I'm like, that's not where they are, mm. right? They're, they're, that's not a story, to get back to story. It's not a story that they aspire to. As a matter of fact, it sounds a lot like I, I talk often about traffic copying. It sounds a lot like we're, we're coming in, we're saying, here's the set of rules within which you have to live your life. And one of those is, is you can't kill your preborn baby. And, you know, you and I, Dean Charlie, would agree with that. But... The truth is, is the woman comes in and she has that choice and she doesn't like the way we lay out that argument and she doesn't have to choose what we're doing, right? The traffic copying solution. Instead, I, I think if you come over here and you say, well, there's, there's different ways to position this product. I like to think of it as how do you create your product around its branding and, and what it does in terms of its benefits where it's a strengths amplifier. Yeah. Right? It's like, how do how do you... How do you show a woman that totally that going this direction enhances your life? That's right? why I, I really this makes think you better. better. Yeah, I more mean, choice. Good grief! And and we, again, we have to package this in an attractive way. But is there anything that develops your character and your virtue more than a new human being and having to sacrifice to take care of a human being? There's nothing. Zero. You know, you and I have experienced that, and so have many people. Now, granted, you'd have to position that and package it in such a way that's attractive to a young woman, but that can be done. We just don't do it enough. Here, here's and Thrive, Thrive, Thrive has done that, and, and that's and, why and, they're and, so successful. And the name is amazing. The brand is great because that really does key on an insight about like what we're talking about. We are talking about thriving. Yeah. Like this is about more choice, more opportunity, better everything. So yeah. that's really great. Here's my sort of last thought on the on the strategy piece of it. This is work we, at, at, when I worked at Disney, Disney was famous for franchise creation mm. and, um, you know, developing characters and they still to a, to a large extent are. One of the other things that I learned in working at Disney is the importance of horizontal thinking versus vertical thinking. Mm. And what I mean by that, let me just use a sports example. You know, you have something like the Super Bowl, which is a day, or you have something like we're, what we're about to enter into, which is the World Cup, which is 30 days. But anyway, you look at those things, they're moments in time. They're like, it's, it's a vertical thing. It comes and it goes. Disney's orientation as a media company is how can we turn verticals into horizontals? How can we make the World Cup a 365-day thing? How do we stretch that out? And you see it a lot in their, um, their own promotion, right? The 50th anniversary of Disney, it goes on for three years. 
or the whatever it is. I mean, they make horizontals out of these things, right? It's coming. I think there's a powerful thing you could do with something like Thrive or something else to make that horizontal frame around the question of women's health, women's thriving, et cetera. So the vertical, which is I'm in the market for an abortion, is part of the equation, but not the entirety of it. And maybe Thrive does this where I'm just a young woman and I want to learn about whatever, my own body, motherhood, et cetera, better health, wellness. I'll look at all the stuff that's happening right now in the world. And Thrive is the, av- or whatever brand, is the avenue to get that. And yeah, abortion, sure, yeah, that's, we're there too. But it's not the totality of our value proposition is not wrapped around that one vertical, but it's more of a horizontal. So it gives you permission to enter into these other areas. That, I think, is also part of a winning strategy that I haven't seen very much. I love that. I will tell you that Thrive does that already, but I've never thought of it in that framework. And I'm glad you, because the way my mind works, I'm glad you laid out an image like that for me. But I'll give you one example of what they do, because when I I first heard Bridget talk about this, I was like, that's brilliant. But I hadn't thought about it in the framework that you just laid out. So, So lots of social media, right? Of course, young people are on social media all the time. And she goes, uh, she she goes, Kim Kardashian. I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, not exactly <laughs> the top person you'd want to lay out there as a model to follow in terms of your morals. But the fact is that young women look to Kim Kardashian for fashion, mm-hmm. right? What is Kim wearing? What kind of makeup is she doing? What's her hairstyle now? Et cetera, et cetera. And so you don't have to come in if you're Thrive and talk about Kim Kardashian and the moral choices that she makes. But if she's like a fashion guru and I'm not part of that market, I don't know, but it sounds like she is for many young women. Go ahead and talk about that. Of course. That. Yeah. Of course. Because you're, what, what you're telling is this is so important for people to understand. When, when you come, you know, you're Thrive and you, you come to young women and you talk about Kim Kardashian and fashion, what you're saying to the young women is... I get you. I care about you. What's important to you is important to me. And that builds trust. And and that's so important. And relatability. It's so important. It's so important for marketing because it could be years, but she's been working, you know, she's been, she's been seeing your posts about Kim Kardashian or health or fashion or all these things. And the whole time she's thinking, man, these Thrive people, they get me. They speak my language. They use my images. They use the words that I resonate with, whatever, you know, whatever young people lingo is going on. They update it all the time. They're spot on. And now, like you said, here, here's this vertical thing that happens. Unexpected. Where pregnancy. am I going to go at that moment? Yeah. Who am I going to go to in a 911 situation? Someone I trust. Who do I trust? Those people. I'm going to call him. And that's how the conversation started. And you're back to the F-150 because that F-150 has been talking to you for 30 years. And at the moment of transaction, it's like, oh, yeah, that's I mean, that's really what this is. And, you know, it also solves a challenge, which I see that is particularly uh, uh, prevalent with Generation Z, which is this notion of they want to see themselves in the thing, whatever Mm -hmm. it is. And to the extent they don't see themselves reflected 
it feels more foreign. It's less relatable. And it applies to every generation. But for whatever reason, Gen, the markers of Gen Z are more pronounced in that regard. It's like, I, I want you to not just talk about the things that are important to me, but I want to know that you're living the way that, that, that I'm living so that when I look at you or interact with you, I see myself. And that makes it more relatable. And I think all of this is part of that same kind of, of dynamic. Man, yeah, Brett, it's, it's, we got to get everybody to read your book, brother. It's just a, it's an approach that, um, and, and, and branding, at least from Marker's perspective, when you talk about proactive versus reactive, right? Yeah. Uh, branding is a very proactive approach. These kinds of horizontal strategies that you're talking about and tactics are very proactive. Whereas when you look at the, the pro, you have lots of words for it, the, I'll call it the pro-life business industry, pregnancy centers, crisis pregnancy centers, whatever name you want to use, very reactive in nature, right? It's like, if that happens to you, we're here for you. And, and then I would say even, you know, the, the bigger problem is, is that when you, when you look at the research, uh, Charlotte Lozier did a research study in 2015, and they did pop a question about brand awareness. Of course, they asked Planned Parenthood, uh, the question, do you recognize Planned Parenthood? 93% brand awareness. It's like, man, when you see your competitor has that kind of brand awareness, you're like, darn it. Yeah. That's, 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 that's really high. <laughs> that's up there with and I'm sure the Disney's and the Cokes. Sure. And, and I'm sure that's and unaided. Like that. That's just yeah. looking at a logo and knowing what it is. I mean, yeah. And then of course they wanted to say, well, what do we have on, on, you know, on our team? And so they used um, Heartbeat's option line because, you know, Heartbeat's been advertising option line out there for many years. And the brand awareness was 8%. So as a marketer, I'm sitting there going, not only does your competitor have double digit brand awareness, it's in the 90s. And you, your, your top player, if you will, has single digit awareness. It's just a huge setup for failure on the ground in terms of marketing, in terms of sales, in terms of uh, your clients choosing you versus choosing your competitor. And so we have to... We, we just have a massive marketing problem. We do. We, we have to overcome this. Um, it, it's like, as I often say, it's, it's like if women don't know about your pregnancy center before they face an unexpected pregnancy, they will not go when they face an unexpected pregnancy, period. doesn't matter. You can sit there and talk about your great you know, product all day long. If women don't know about it, what does it matter? And so this is a challenge. And, and so now I'm, I'm, I'm very optimistic because... Not only do we have the opportunity to to start to make women aware about uh, a very empowering type of uh, pregnancy help center product, I'd like really rather call it women's healthcare, but it's proven that it works. Yeah. And so the, the question is now, how do you start to scale this and expand it in other cities? And, and that's what we're working it's on. It's also right going to require, just before we get to our last segment here, wait, what? It's also going to require um, that this language that we're speaking is also merchandised to the people behind it, the donors, et cetera. Because what we just described is also the difference between a kind of direct response way of looking at the world versus a brand response way of looking at the world. And the reality is both of those things need to be working together. Sure. We need to tell the upper parts of the funnel and then draw people into it. But if our donor base is like, well, how many kids did you save? And that's why I'm giving you the money. They need to be told, talked to in a different way yeah. about this broader strategy. At the end of the day, it just means more people, I think, 
in positions of leadership and influence in the pro-life movement having conversations like this. Yeah. That's what I think it's about. So I think it's it's similar to how capital markets work, right? So if we went back to like the, you know, the, the dot-com time when the, the social media things like, let's just say Facebook was starting to come online, right? So the, the people that were using it are starting to get it in terms of its benefits. Certainly the people in the company are starting to say, man, this really has some potential. But then like you're saying, Deacon Char, they had to go back to the capitalists that could fund the scaling and the expansion of this and tell that story in such a way where the capitalists go, ah, yes, yeah. I see that. I see the potential and I can see that this could turn my, you know, $10 million into a billion dollars. Here you go, Zuckerberg, right? And so the same thing here that's like, so, so really heroic media's primary role in this helping thrive expand strategy is really that role. It's taking that story out to philanthropists, out to people that support pro-life, talking about the success of this model, me coming in as a marketer and saying and analyzing, here's why it worked and showing them that this is a scalable product and that, look, we want, we all want this, right? We want the national counterbrand to Planned Parenthood. Here's the model that I think shows it has the best potential to become that. Let's get after it. I love it. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah. Um, just, just before we kind of turn the corner here on our final segment, Brad, I did want to give you an opportunity to talk about stuff, ways people can keep in touch with you, follow your work. We've talked about your book, your pro-life bottom line. I know there's a, there's a magazine as well, but how, you know, how do folks get in touch, follow, is there something big coming next? Like give us that, that little bit. Okay. So my website is brettatterbury.com. That's B-R-E-T-T-A-T-T-E-B-E-R-Y. Dot com. Also, I'm the president and CEO of Heroic Media. You can go to heroicmedia.org. The book, Your Pro-Life Bottom Line, you can find that either at my website or you can just find it on Amazon. It's available there. Uh, in terms of big things coming, we are working with Thrive, uh, expanding their model, which has now become a telehealth model. Uh, not to get into it too much, but you know, the abortion industry has basically transformed from an in-clinic procedure to now, their growth is through the abortion Direct response, yeah. direct to consumer, rather, yeah. yeah. Uh, through mail order, no matter mm -hmm. what the laws are. And so Thrive has responded to that with a telehealth type of approach. And, and the reason that's important is because you can go into a market now with all the branding advertising without having to have a brick and mortar facility because mm -hmm. it's all telehealth. So it allows you to scale this rapidly. So we've already helped Thrive get this going in Oklahoma City and in Philadelphia. And that's really what our goal is now is just to raise that capital to start expanding it into other cities. Awesome. Well, we'll include all that information in the show notes. And uh, what a great privilege to have you, man, especially here in person. God bless all your work. Um, love to, you know, get more involved and, and find out uh, ways that we might be able to collaborate. But in the meantime, all of our prayers Thank you very uh, much. For, for the continuing thriving of your work and everything else that you're doing. I think it's super, um, super compelling, super new, innovative, and we all should uh, take a page from your book, literally. So, um, Brett, you ready to pray, play, uh, wait, what? I am. All I right. got to tell you, Deacon Charlie, I listened to some of the previous episodes and I'm nervous. Those <laughs> yeah. are hard questions. <laughs> all right. Well, here, here we go. Here <laughs> we go. Now, Brett, I know you went to Tulane. I did. All right. In beautiful, and by the way, Catholic New Orleans. I think it's still Catholic, right? Or there's a lot more, there's a lot of Catholic in New Orleans. So I thought you'd be the right guy for this question. Now, Brett, among Tulane's notable alumni, interestingly, is the star of a hit 1970s cop show. 
who played a very casual detective, who, among other things, piloted a very cool 1976 Ford Grand Torino. Who was he? 1970s. I can give you. I can give you other. So I, hints. Was, I was alive. <laughs> well, you would know Did this I from watch? a pop culture reference standpoint. Even if you weren't, uh, you should anyway. But yeah, so this is a 1970s cop show, detective show, and this particular guy who went to Tulane played a detective who was the pilot, the driver of a 1976 Ford Grand Torino. And I'll give you a, a hint: it had a white stripe on the Ford Grand Torino. Very famous slash along the back. Wasn't, uh, it couldn't have been Columbo, no? No, he didn't have the Gran Torino. Although the same time period. Yeah, so I'm trying to run through my 1970s shows. I would have been, you know, I was was born in 65. I'll give you another hint. It was two detectives. They were a team. Not Dragnet, that was before. That was before. Yeah. You're close with the Teddy Savalas reference, but you're, you're close to the time period. I don't know. Are you familiar with the show Starsky and Hutch? Of course. It's Paul Michael Glazer who was Starsky. He was Is the guy who right? drove the El Torino, the, the Gran Torino. And didn't they do a remake of that? Not they did, ago? and it yeah. was terrible. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> it was yeah. off with Ben Stiller. But ben yeah, Stiller. That's right. Oh, he goodness. actually played the Paul Michael Glazer character. Yeah. <laughs> so he uh, he went to Tulane as well. So there you go. Excellent. All right, question number two, Brett. I'm going to give you half a point for that just because you still went to Tulane. So it's got to count for something. Question number two, which of these is false about your hometown of Dallas, Texas? Is it A, the term World Cup? Ironically, we just talked about it. Is it A, the term World Cup was born in Dallas when the principal founder of the AFL, the American Football League, as well as Major League Soccer, sent a letter describing the event to the head of FIFA? Or is it B, German chocolate cake, it turns out, is not German at all, but was created by a Dallas resident named Samuel German? Or is it C, Brett, a Dallas priest is credited with coining the term ecstasy for the popular club drug MDMA? Which of those is false? Oh, that they were all false, but but uh, which is false? I just don't think there's any way you can make up C. I'm going to say B. Sadly, Brett, you're wrong. It actually is A. The uh, term World Cup was not born in Dallas, although a little trick there because the term Super Bowl was born in Dallas, and it actually was by this guy who founded the AFL. He did send a letter to the head of the commissioner of the NFL and, and said, hey, you should call it the Super Bowl. And German chocolate cake, it's truly named after a guy named Samuel German who was from Dallas. But and it's also true, sadly, it's actually crazy because I looked it up and there's a movie that's been uh, that's being created around this story. Uh, when he was a seminarian, uh, a priest by the name Michael, Cle- well, he's a seminarian then, he became a priest, Michael Clegg from Dallas. Apparently, one of those stories that's like, you need to make a movie about, I guess, but um, apparently at some point got into the sale and distribution of MDMA in the, in the mid-80s and he had some crazy idea that it was like some, you know, conduit to God. And he's the one who gave it the name Ecstasy. Uh, I think it's Lionsgate, actually, that optioned a book that's making a movie right now about this case. And that did actually happen in Dallas. As sad as it is, my friend, it's actually true. So correct answer is A. Um, but 
Even if you live in Dallas, those are pretty hard questions. <laughs> All right. So finally, you're guaranteed to get this one right, Brett, because if you listen to the show, you know that there's always a time machine question. So you can, whatever your answer is, is going to be correct. Thank you so much. Now, in this case, you get to go forward in time right here in Los Angeles, Brett, but you're going to go forward in time 500 years, a half a millennia. It's the year 2522. And sadly, organized religion has been outlawed in California. I think that's not a stretch of the imagination for people to think about. After getting your bearings and sampling some of the new advancements in technology, you decide on a way to help bring the faith back to this corner of the world. Where, Brett, do you begin? Well, I'm going to assume if it's outlawed, then people are really back to just not understanding the basics of like creation or anything. They, they may be more like people were like 5,000 years ago. Mm. And so I'm going to start with, I'm going to pull the, the St. Paul. I'm going to find something like the, uh, the, the oh, unknown the God. The unknown God, yeah. I'm going to find something there that I can like, you know, maybe it's something that's just created and it's beautiful. The iPhone 72. <laughs> Or maybe I'm just going to take him out to this beautiful beach here and just go, Ooh. you know, you know, uh, Charlie, because you're obviously not a deacon. Then, That's right. Hey, Charlie, where do you think this came from? Mm. And to start the conversation there and try to start moving as St. Paul did. I'm not sure he was that successful, but try to start moving them towards the, the love of the beauty of creation. I would start with something really basic around mm. them like that. I love that. And try to move them that direction slowly, evangelizing, not just bringing you know, the full gospels to them, but really starting to try to speak to their hearts through what they understand and can see. Amen. Amen. Awesome. I'm going to give you uh, one, uh, 1.75 points uh, out of three. Right. <laughs> hey, that's not bad, That's man. not bad. That's yeah, good. That's a that. passing grade. Whew. But uh, once again, what a privilege to have you come and have this conversation with me. Really, really appreciate it. And uh, if you're listening to our voices, that means it is time right now to subscribe to the show, to share this episode with a friend, somebody who can benefit from what we've talked about and we've talked about quite a bit. And remember about this show. We'll see you again next time on Living the Call.